Hello, everyone. Welcome to a Millennial Learns. Thank you all so much for tuning in to today's episode. Now, if you have seen the title of this episode, you will know that we are going over and learning about Catholic nuns and what it takes to become one. Now, this has always fascinated me because I've always known about nuns. I went to a Catholic school for a couple years. Um, and then in college, I went to a Catholic college night event at the local Catholic church and they had nuns or what I now think are sisters, which we'll go over that distinction. I thought they were the same thing at first, but turns out they're a little bit different. So these sisters or nuns would go around and travel from campus to campus and help run these events and socialize. And you could see them like playing Frisbee on the grassy areas around campus sometimes. And so that really intrigued me because one of the nuns I met there was so cool. Like she was so spunky, so fun. And I was like, wow, I, you know, you always kind of think of the nun stereotype as like an older woman who's like very solemn and everything. But this woman really changed my whole perspective on religious life and these religious orders. So that was like my first exposure, but I never really sat down and learned too much about um, you know, monasteries or convents or anything like that until I started watching and reading the book Call the Midwife. Now, I've talked about this a few times in the last few podcast episodes because I'm absolutely obsessed with the show, but I'm also reading the book called Call the Midwife. And if you are not familiar with the show or the book, it is about this order of um, Anglican nuns plus some other just midwives that aren't, haven't taken religious vows. And they all live in this house and it's basically like a a convent. They all live there and then they go out and they are all midwives. So they live in the west or the east end, I think of London. They live in Poplar, London, and they go around and help deliver babies of the people there. And it's, you know, steeped in poverty and everything like that. So It is a very interesting story about, you know, kind of the beginnings of the science of midwifery and the practice of midwifery. And the main like driving force behind this was this order of nuns. So that's why I have been recently interested and why I actually decided to sit down and research nuns. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Let's get right into it. Okay, let's start with the question of what is a nun. Now, the definition of a nun is a woman who has chosen celibacy, poverty, and other human denying virtues in order to commit her life to God. Now, an important distinction here is there can be nuns in a lot of different religions. So there are Catholic nuns, there can be like Buddhist nuns, or I think there's Hindu nuns. Naturally, I'm Christian, I was raised Catholic, and so, Today, we're going to be focusing just on Catholic nuns and the variations that can kind of come within the Catholic church. 
So within the Catholic Church, nuns can be divided into different orders to serve the church and to serve people in different ways. Now, all of these orders and divisions agree on the basic principles. They all have to be Catholic. They all have to have basically the same um, qualifications or requirements to join the order, but they have small variances in their regulations, procedures, and lifestyles, which from everything I've read the past week, when you're trying to discern if you're being called into the religious life or to be a nun or a sister, it's very important that you kind of shop around a little bit and see which community you will fit best in. Because again, like they're all going to be Catholic if you're looking to become a Catholic nun, but some communities are very, very strict. Like you're praying six times a day and it's at this exact time and then you all eat together. You're all eating in silence. You're wearing this exact thing, blah, blah, blah. So it's like very, very set in stone. While some communities are a little more relaxed, you know, there's full periods of like quiet time and you can decide when you're going to pray within there. And so it's important to see different communities to see which style you like the best because again, they're pretty much their beliefs are very similar, but uh, there are small differences. So the other distinction I really want to make here is that nuns and sisters are not actually the same thing. I always thought that the word nun and the word sister are just interchangeable because if you see a nun, you you she's addressed by like Sister Abigail or Sister... Uh, Sister Monica Joan, that's uh, one of the nuns in the Call the Midwife show. But even though they're addressed as the same thing, sister, whatever the name is, there's actually a distinct difference between what a sister is and what a nun is. So this is from a nun's life ministry. It's called a nunslife.org is the website. I'll link this below so you can go read the entire thing. But essentially, here's the summary of the differences between a Catholic nun and a Catholic sister. This says, a Catholic nun is a woman who lives as a contemplative... Oh, wait. Okay. A Catholic nun is a woman who lives as a contemplative life in a monastery, which is usually cloistered or enclosed or semi-cloistered. Her ministry and prayer life is centered within and around the monastery for the good of the world. She professes the perpetual solemn vows of of living a life according to the evangelical counsels of poverty, celibacy, and obedience. So an example of these, this type of nun, is the Carmelite nuns of Baltimore. So you are in a convent, you're cloistered from society or semi-cloistered, and you are mostly in that monastery and in that community. You're not really out in the world doing too much. A Catholic sister is a woman who lives, ministers, and prays within the world. A sister's life is often called active or apostolic because she is engaged in the works of mercy and other ministries that take the gospel to others where they are. She professes perpetual simple vows, living a life according to the evangelical counsels of poverty, celibacy, and obedience. Check out the IHM Sisters of Monroe, Michigan, for example. It says, because both nuns and sisters belong to the church life form of religious life, they can also be called women religious. So what distinguishes the two, sisters and nuns, 
is the type of vow that they're taking. So there's a solemn vow that nuns take versus a simple vow which sisters take. Now, there's something called the New Commentary of the Code of Canon Law, and it explains the distinction. It says, the older religious orders, monastic, canon regulars, mendicants, and Jesuits have perpetual solemn vows, and the more recent apostolic congregations have perpetual simple vows. The chief juridical juridical difference between the two is that religious who profess a solemn vow of poverty renounce ownership of all their temporal goods, whereas religious who profess a simple vow of poverty have a right to retain ownership of their patrimony, for example, like an estate, endowment, or anything inherited from one's parents, but they must give up its use and any revenue from it. So it does say that in ordinary conversation, the terms nun and sister are used pretty interchangeably, but you know, there is technically a difference between the two. So if you encounter a nun who is like living in a monastery or even if they're out and about and they're kind of in a semi-cloistered community, that means that every one of her possessions she has given up. And a sister can still own some possessions but can't gain any revenue off of it. So that is the difference there. We are just going to go over nuns, not sisters necessarily, because there's enough distinction even within the category of just nuns that... I think there's going to be plenty of material to cover. So um, let's go into some of the different types of nuns. Now there's types of nuns and then there's orders of nuns. The types of nuns is like one level down in distinction from just the umbrella term of nun. There's monastic, mendicant, and canons regular and clerics regular. Now orders of nuns are individual communities of sisters or nuns that fall under a certain type. So for example, there's an order of nuns called the Benedictines or the Trappists or the Basilians. Those are all orders of nuns that fall into the monastic category. So just think of an order as one individual community or kind of like a denomination, but they can fall under these three different types of nuns. So for monastic, monastic nuns are the most devout. They tend to work and live in a monastery all the time and they recite divine office daily. Now divine office is something that contains several prayers throughout each day. So they'll go in, recite um, these prayers. And for monastic nuns, it's very scheduled. So one of the orders that I looked at, they pray at midnight, at dawn, 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., 6 p.m., and 9 p.m. There tends to be like six or seven times during the day where you're going to go in and pray. It seems to be very, very scheduled, at least in the monastic order that I was looking at. And so your life is really in the monastery, devoted to prayer, devoted to living in community with the fellow nuns that you're in the monastery with. Mendicant nuns, tend to, you know, it gets a little bit more relaxed. So they support themselves off of alms. They're not out. Um, they still have the same vows of poverty and chastity and things like that, but they don't necessarily need to live at a convent or monastery. They can 
still if they choose to but it tends to be less strict and they can live out on their own um, but they do have the same type of vows and then canons regular is the third type and this contains nuns who recite the divine office and may be in charge of parts of a local parish so usually a priest will be in charge of a local parish but nuns can be put in charge of certain areas within the parish or certain ministries or of things like that so um, they still again take the vows of chastity poverty and obedience this includes a clerics regular which is like a jesuit um uh type or order and so these three types all fall within nuns but they tend to be a little bit less um strict as we go through the types so this says each of the three main types contains several orders that fall under their jurisdiction and rule set the carmelite order for example also known as the order of brothers of our lady of mount carmel which is a mouthful is one of the orders that fall under mendicant they're known among the catholic orders as having very high ratio of visions of mary and jesus and have written many of the integral catholic devotions the benedictines formerly known as the order of saint benedict are a monastic community that observes the rules set forth by saint benedict these rules include devotion to their community surrendering full jurisdiction to the abbots and abs abbesses living in their abbey this includes being instructed on which books may be read activities regulated and punishments received when appropriate they follow a tight time tight timetable each day and have hours of silence so that's kind of just a summary of what we were saying with the varying levels and varying degrees of how strict and how much of your day is determined by the community and by the order so there's kind of a wide variance in there so what are the requirements to be eligible to become a nun there are five notable ones so you have to be roman catholic and a woman those are pretty straightforward to becoming a roman catholic nun <laughs> you have to be a woman who is catholic you also must be single or widowed now there have been people who have been married have kids and then want to become a nun technically they still can but you cannot be divorced you have to have an annulment which an annulment and a divorce are similar but a divorce is like a civil proceeding and an annulment is an appeal to the catholic church to essentially say your marriage was not like never happened almost it annuls the entire thing and you have to have grounds of like the that at the time of the vows the i did not know the truth about this or it's just a much more formal process to not be married anymore than just like a civil divorce it is through the church and that has to happen if someone has been married before um widows are allowed to be nuns so that's another way that there could be a nun who has kids now if a woman who has kids wants to be a nun they cannot have any dependent children. So there's not gonna be a young mother who is going to be accepted as a nun. They have to be turned 18 at least and not be claiming that child as a dependent in order to enter the religious order. You can't have any debts either, but there's a lot of people who try to enter the um, becoming a nun or the religious life with 
previous debts, especially because it's not a requirement, but it's a very strong encouragement for anyone who's pursuing becoming a nun to also have a degree. So a lot of people come in with student debt from that. And so the community or the monastery or the church that you're affiliated with will a lot of times help to cover the debts of nuns. So that is not, like many websites that I've looked at make it very, very clear that like they say, do not not show up or do not stop pursuing this or trying to discern if this is right for you just because you have debts. If you have debt and you still think that God is calling you to this life, still come and check us out and stuff and we will help you with debt. But if you're taking your full vows at that point, you're not going to have any debt. Um, and then they just want you to be physically and psychologically healthy. They're you know, a lot of websites, again, like make it clear, you do not have to be some marathon runner. You don't have to be in the tip top of shape, but you have to be psychologically there and healthy and not have any crazy debilitating illness. You should be physically able to carry this lifestyle out. Okay, so let's walk through the timeline and the process of actually becoming a nun because it is much, much longer than what I thought. I figured it took maybe a couple of years. It is a very long time. It takes about nine to 12 years between you kind of inquiring about, you know, is this right for me or not to actually taking your vows as a full-fledged nun. So the first stage is the inquirer stage. This is pretty straightforward. It's basically asking questions of each community, doing your research, going and visiting different communities and having that discernment phase of saying, am I actually called to religious life? Am I actually meant to do this? Now, you would think that if you're, you know, trying to pursue possibly becoming a nun, this would be a very bad time to start dating someone. But during this phase, they're very, very open to potential future nuns dating because this is all a huge commitment. And so basically the attitude is you should be living your normal life and trying to discern of the Lord if this is for you. Now, if you meet someone that you fall head over heels in love with and you then no longer want to become a nun, it's good to know that. It's also good to know like, hey, you know, I, I read a whole article about this nun who did follow through and become a nun who during her inquirer stage actually met someone and fell in love. And they said, okay, that's great. Just keep discerning if this is for you. And she made the decision that God was calling her to religious life over marriage. So at that point, it helped kind of solidify her decision because she had experienced both. So you're not like closing off your life in the event that you're asking about or inquiring about becoming a nun. You're still living your life. You're going around and seeing which community might line up best with your vision and what you think God is calling you to. Okay, then the next phase is called the aspirant, which is, it lasts one to two years. This is a time of spiritual and human formation is what it's labeled. Now, the starting time for an aspirancy begins when the woman seriously wishes to pursue discernment of the handmade vocation, which 
this process and this timeline that I am going through right now is specifically for an order called the Handmaids of the Precious Blood Order. I'm going to step through two different timelines because they vary a little bit, just so you can see a little bit of how each order is different from each other. But for this one specifically, after the Inquirer phase, and if someone says, okay, I really, I think this is what God is calling me to, then your time of being an aspirant starts. So that's when a woman seriously wishes to pursue discernment uh, in the vocation. They pair you up with a mentor. They, you know, guide you in your prayer life. They develop a schedule that's suitable to the your current lifestyle. So again, you're not like putting your entire life on hold. You're just starting to ease a little bit more into this lifestyle and see if it suits you. Part of this is at least a three-month extended stay and a retreat to search for and seek discernment. It's called a discernment re retreat. And you will come and live formally at the monastery as an aspirant just for a period of time. It's not for like the entire time, but during this three-month extended stay, you will live at the monastery and your, the clothing is a little bit different. It's a simple red tunic, um, a blue kerchief, and this all symbolizes that you are trying to determine if this is for you. After the one to two years as an aspirant, and after you've done this discernment retreat and done a three-month extended stay, if all of those things go well and you decide you still would like to pursue this lifestyle, you're then known as a postulant. The postulant phase also lasts one to two years, and this is a gradual and progressive passage from secular life to a complete monastic life, contemplative monastic life. So again, it's not full time at this point yet, but it's getting there. It's getting more and more, um, it's progressively becoming more and more monastic. So the, again, the dress changes a little bit. You now wear a waist length cloth worn over your back and chest. Um, and then you have a different colored cap and this is like a tribute to Mary. So this is just another phase where it's it's more serious. You're really checking out if this community still works for you. If you still want to do it, you're getting more, you're spending more and more time in the monastery and you're continuing to discern. If all of that goes well, you're now a novice. You are a novice for two years and this is, again, continuing time of discernment. You are just verifying at that point the real ability to live the life and and live at the monastery you're spending more and more time there you're at this point studying scriptures so you're um, studying the writing the writings of the fathers of the church the founder of the order you are attending the prayers with the community you have um they want to see if you have this authentic devotion that the order professes so again just it's phases of becoming more and more serious about this and they're saying okay you have two years to do this now does this still feel like god is calling you to this at the end of your novice time you receive your new name your religious name and start wearing the full-length cloak that is associated with a lot of nuns so the dress in this order at least very much reflects what phase you're in then 
after you have gotten through the novice phase and you still think this is what God is calling me to, you're then considered a junior sister. Now you're a junior sister for five years. And at that point, you're living full-time in the community. You have a temporary profession of the vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience. And you learn to live your life, uh, learn to live her vows in day-to-day life. Okay. So this is basically the final time where you can back out without issues, really. As a junior sister, you have only taken temporary vows. So if you decide at the end of the five years that this is not for you and that's, and I'm sure that happens, if you live the five years and you say, I actually don't know if God is calling me into a full lifetime of this, this was enough, you can leave at that point. But after you're a junior sister, if you still believe that this is the life that God is calling you to, then you become a solemnly professed sister, which you have this ceremony. It's kind of like a wedding because the idea of a nun is that you're not going to ever be married to a human man. You're going to be married to Jesus. So the ceremony is reminiscent of a wedding. It's obviously not the exact same thing, but it's a formal ceremony. You profess your lifelong vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience, and you are becoming the bride of Christ. And at that point, you're all in. You're full-time at the monastery. And yeah, you're you're a full-fledged sister and nun. So that is in the Handmaid's um, Order. Now, I've mentioned the Carmelite Order a couple times. And so I wanted to go over a quick timeline of, of their um, kind of procession into this because it's a little bit different from, you know, from order to order. So this is their process. First, it's the initial contact. So if a woman feels that God is calling her to be a Carmelite nun, she's invited to make contact with the leadership. She can sit in the monastery, visit, and get to know the sisters. And um, she can come pray and stuff and just see if this community can, seems like a good fit. Now, If it does, and if everyone thinks that she might be a good fit for the community, a live-in is arranged. So a live-in is where the aspirant would be invited to come and spend a period of time inside the monastery, living, working, and praying with the rest of the sisters. This process is important as it enables both sides to get a better sense of each other. Okay, so basically they're saying there's not very much free time in the Carmelite order. There's, um, very scheduled, uh, activities. There's formality in common life. Um, so for example, they eat meals in silence. They eat in something called a refectory and they sing and they pray. And so there's not a lot of free time. So they say it's important for a woman exploring her vocation to experience this formality and this lack of free time firsthand in order to make a full informed decision. At this stage, there's still no commitment on either side. You can back out at any time. If you do your live-in and say like, this is not for me, I would go crazy having this little free time, you can leave and there are no hurt feelings here. Okay. 
But if both the community and the aspirant feel that it is still right to continue with the discernment, she may apply to enter Carmel as a postulant. Now, this is very similar between orders. So she'll, by this time, she'll have known the community for at least a year or more. Um, they really don't want you to rush into this. They want you to take plenty of time because again, it's such, it's a lifelong decision. So they are in no rush to get you through this process. They have references, a medical check, and the aspirant must have the vote of the community. So they all vote to accept or decline each aspirant as a postulant. So it says, when a woman enters Carmel, she kisses a crucifix as she crosses the threshold into the enclosure and is greeted by the community. At this point, she will already have left behind much of her past life, work, family, friends, home, and possessions. This can be a difficult transition and it will take time to adjust to a new way of life and many new customs. A postulant wears her own secular clothes rather than a religious habit. So this is a difference between the two orders that we're looking at. At this postulancy stage, the handmaid's order that we looked at first wears, a, they do wear a religious habit, but it's different than the full-fledged sister's religious habit. And for the Carmelites, they're wearing secular clothes at this point. During this time, she's supported by regular meetings and study with a novice mistress. Postulancy lasts about a year. Okay. Then after that, you come to the novici novitiate stage. It says at the end of this period, if both sides feel it is right to continue, the community votes for the new postulant to be accepted as a novice. This is the point where then um, the new novitiate will be clothed in the religious habit. But there's a white veil um, at the... At her clothing ceremony, the new sister will take her religious name. This may be her baptismal name or a new name. This is also a distinction between the Carmelite order and the other order that we looked at. Carmelites also take a mystery after our name. For example, Teresa of Jesus. Wait, let's see. Um, uh, let's see. Well, this one says Teresa of Jesus, John of the Cross, or Teresa of child Jesus. That is the mystery after their name. I wasn't sure if they were splitting that up into three different examples or if that was just all one example, but it's all one. So this, it says this mystery is an integral part of our vocation to be pondered in our hearts over a lifetime. So you can choose whatever religious mystery you want. And then over the course of your whole life in this monastery, that is something to keep in the back of your mind and ponder. The novice takes full part in prayer, life, and work of the community, though her time is also protected in a special way for formation. She will continue to have regular meetings with the novice mistress. She has classes and study time. Um, and so, again, this is not, you're not a full-fledged sister, but you are definitely living in the monastery at this time. Okay, temporary profession. At the end of the novice period or at the end of her novitiate, the vote of the chapter um, or the chapter votes again and a sister may be accepted for a profession. This is the moment where a decisive commitment is made both to the Carmelite life and to the particular monastery and community she is called to. During the profession mass, the sister makes vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience for a period of three years. 
Now, if you remember the other order that we talked about, the temporary profession stage was five years. So the Carmelites have only three years. She's given a crucifix that she wears under her scapular and over her heart for the rest of her life as a symbol of her profession. The period of temporary profession is one of greater stability where a sister can settle more deeply into the life of the community and begin to take on more responsibility. For the first two years, she continues to be supported by the novice mistress and to have time set aside for formation and study. Okay, and then she goes into solemn profession. So the sister may renew the temporary vows for a further period. With the vote of the chapter, she may be accepted for solemn profession. This is the absolute lifelong gift of herself to God, solemnly and publicly received by the church. This time her vows are forever, and she receives a black veil instead of a white veil as a symbol of this consecration. So there's still a difference in dress between like the ju you know junior sister or temporary profession to the solemn profession in both orders and that's pretty consistent from what i've seen in all orders there's something that symbolizes in your dress that you are fully committed and you are a you have made your solemn prof uh, profession so that is the uh process of becoming a nun which takes nine to 12 years so again you are not rushing this because it is such a huge commitment that they want you to basically be able to back out at any stage until your solemn profession okay so let's go through a little bit of the <clears throat> daily life of nuns so one of the orders is the benedictine nuns that i looked at and this is a typical <clears throat> day in the life so here's the timetable. At 5 a.m., everyone gets up. It's time for prayer and reading before the day's noise and busyness intrudes. It says some members of the community are up earlier, but they have to be extra quiet and breakfast is usually eaten around this time. At 6 a.m., there are vigils. The first day of the, um, the first of the day's offices or services, a mixture of Psalms and scriptures. So everyone starts the day in meditation on the word so vigils at six at seven fifteen is the morning prayer it's sung in english and afterwards they begin their work for the day this says the time of mass varies according to whether it is being celebrated in our oratory or belmont abbey or one of the local parishes we love having mass in the oratory where we can use some of the traditional plain song chants as well as more modern english settings when we go to Belmont or one of the nearby parishes, there may be timetable adjustments. Okay, so this can obviously vary a little bit. At noon is the midday prayer. At 12.30 is lunch. So sometimes there's guests and visitors that come into the convent or the community. And so um, that can be shared with guests. Let's see. Then there's free time for writing, hobbies, or like little jobs or chores that need to be done. At 2.30, they begin to work again. So depending on the order and depending on their vocations, work can mean many different things. There's orders of like teachers. There's orders uh, like in the Call the Midwife book of uh, nurses or more doctor focused things. So work can be anything. It could also just mean like chores around the convent. Um, but at 2.30, work begins. At four o'clock, 
they have a cup of tea. They said <laughs> thereabouts, it says 4 p.m. or thereabouts. Being British, we generally have a cup of tea. <laughs> Um, it says, at some point in the afternoon, each nun will make time for more prayer and reading. As a minimum, we are committed to two and a half hours of contemplative prayer every day and at least uh, half an hour of Lectio, Lectio Divina or prayerful reading. There are also opportunities for further study since as Benedictines, we prize learning. In fact, the library was one of the first things we set about making. Okay, so more prayer, reading, and meditation on the word at 5 p.m it's something called vespers sung in latin and this is then followed by supper preparations at 6 45 is supper or the main meal of the day and then they say after supper we try to keep the house quiet so anyone who wishes can pray or read or relax without being disturbed and then at 8 15 there is a night prayer afterwards comes the special time known as the great silence now this is in the call the midwife show they talk about the great silence a few times and so they don't talk after 8 15 or after the night prayer i should say so the night prayer starts at 8 15 it goes for like 15 30 minutes i think and then after that there's no talking until the next day so no one can speak and no one can make any unnecessary noise they are free to go to bed after the um, night prayer, but lights out is at 11 p.m. So, as you can see from that daily schedule, there is not a lot of free time. There's a little bit in after lunch, but other than that, you're working or praying or eating or doing your, you know, group activities of prayer. And then even in your free time, like after the night prayer, it's not like you can talk. Like I couldn't have a podcast as a hobby because I could not talk after 8.15. So that's why it takes so long to become a nun and to make sure that this is the right move for you because it's a shocking change of lifestyle, really. So that is the daily schedule of nuns, at least one order of nuns. It definitely varies by order, but that seems pretty standard along uh, the lines of the monastic nuns. Okay. What are the outfits? Why do nuns wear what they wear? What are the different pieces of the outfit and when do they wear it? So the different pieces of the nuns outfit and the outfit is called a habit. So there are a few different pieces of the nuns habit and let me go through them really quick. So they have a white, or sorry, let's just go with a traditional outfit. This is a very hard because it's a visual. So go to my Instagram. I put a diagram up of the visual pieces and their names, but I will try to explain this without using any pictures. So in the traditional nun's outfit, there is this white cap on their head. That is called a coif. It's a close fitting white cap that holds the headdress in place. Okay, so that is a coif. Now, all of these colors can change based on the order that they're in or the type of nun, but we'll just go with the traditional, think white and black. Okay, then there is the black 
long part that they wear on their head. That's called the veil. That's pretty standard. So the coif is what is keeping the headdress or veil in place. Now, nuns are also very modest. Part of their vocation or their vows are chastity and purity and all those things. And so they need to dress very modestly. So if you look at a traditional nun's outfit, they have a white, a very tight, like white uh, piece of fabric under their chin and around the sides of their face. That is called a wimple. And that goes down kind of around their shoulders and up under their chin. So that's called a wimple. And then their main sort of dress is called a tunic. Now, it is a dress. They just don't call it a dress because they chose words that would stand out from everyday, ordinary uh, people of the world's terms. So they wanted to point out that their lifestyle is not that similar to a traditional person's lifestyle in the world. So it's called a tunic, not a dress. And then there's usually a piece of fabric that hangs down in front and behind. That's called a scapular. And, um, you know, different orders receive that scapular at different times. But by the time everyone reaches their solemn uh, professions, they usually also have a scapular. Now, depending on the order, there's different emphasis placed on how traditional a nun's habit is. This can be changed up some. So some nun's habits look a little bit more casual where they only have basically like one headpiece. They might not have the scapular, but this is just very traditional, traditional nun's attire. Now they wear this every day. There's really not a lot of variety from what I can find. Whatever the order uh, the order's habit looks like, that's pretty much what they're wearing every single day. So the handmaid's um, order that we went over before, they wear all, like all of their stuff is wine red because it's symbolic of the blood of Jesus and the wine, you know, that they take in Eucharist and things like that. So their whole habit is wine red. But for like traditional... I believe for Carmelites, their whole tunic and scapular and veil are black. So again, it can vary between orders, but within the order, there's not a lot of variety. You're wearing that every day. However, to bed, there's no real difference between a nun's bedding attire and say myself or um, just people in the world, they wear just like pajamas. As long as they're modest and you know, they're not walking around in like short, short pajamas like some people do. So um, they will just wear like pajama sets. But as soon as they're up and at, and at them, they're wearing their full habit. Okay, so that is pretty much what I had for the Catholic nuns. But I did want to talk a little bit about the specific nuns in the Call the Midwives show because it's so interesting. I wanted to know what order they were and what type they were and stuff like that. So the group of midwives that are in this show are this whole thing, this whole show and whole book is based on a true story. It was, is it about a group? I just stuttered so hard, but it is about a group of seven Anglican sisters who were midwives. So they're of the community of St. John the Divine. That is the order of their sisterhood. The community was founded in 1848 as a nursing sisterhood. So 
in all those work times or their vocations, they were all focused on nursing. And again, they worked in London's East End in Poplar, London, where it was extremely, extremely riddled with with poverty. Midwives were not really a thing before that. People would, like just women in the community would come and help women deliver babies, but they had no training. It was super informal. They had all these like wives tales and stuff. And so it just wasn't safe. The mortality rate of infants was very, very high by today's standards. So this community and group of nuns was some of the first trained midwives who would go around in poverty stricken areas and actually help to deliver babies in a trained sanitary way and the you know they helped the mortality rate go down by a lot um they moved to birmingham england in 1976 and basically that's because there was this government service called the national health service that was founded in 1948 and from 1948 to 1976, like for those decades, the sisters still continued to work in conjunction with the National Health Service to provide midwife and nursing services. They just, you know, as the NHS grew, the midwives kind of weren't needed as much. So eventually, most of what they were doing got absorbed by the National Health Service and by the government as a whole. And so they didn't see the need of specific midwifery in uh, Poplar anymore. So they moved to Birmingham in 1976 and focused more on like holistic uh, nursing. So not midwifery specifically, just like health and nursing overall. So there are pictures of the seven nurses and, and nuns and sisters that um, were in that house and providing midwife um, assistance and they are just so awesome I would highly highly recommend the show I love it up until about season four I believe like the first three seasons are perfect and very very closely aligned with the book so I would highly recommend that um, but that is all I have for today I hope you enjoyed learning about Catholic nuns I know I my eyes have been opened. I had no idea there was any difference between nuns and sisters. So I hope you learned a lot and I will see you on Thursday for our episode about the history of New Jersey. So I'll see you then. Bye everyone.